Good morning. All right, well, God bless you. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. As we continue in this chapter, we are now at a very controversial passage, Matthew, chapter 18. Most people focus on verses 15 through 17, but I want us to look at verses 14 through 17 in context today. I mean, today's passage, again, it's controversial. Why? It's because sometimes Christians ignore the teaching of our Lord on the confrontation of sin. We don't want to touch it because if we confront someone about their sin, we do, if we do that, we're unloving toward them. That's one perception. Some Christians, though, here's the other part of why this is controversial. Some Christians pounce on this passage by, and this teaching by Jesus on confrontation of sin as an obligation. I am the one to confront the sin in our midst, and they take it as a right. Um, they, then they abuse it. I mean, they, it can't, this, this passage, this teaching of our Lord can be abused to a harmful extent as well. However, I, I want us to pause here, and I want to take in the context of this passage in light of Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 and 4. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 says... This was the introduction to the chapter. The the disciples come to Jesus and ask the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus' reply about a child in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I want us to understand Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, in the spirit of verse 1 and verse 4. And I think if we do that, we'll avoid the controversial approach to this passage. So may I suggest that we look at Matthew 18, 15, verses 17 with a spirit of humility and with childlike obedience. This is the way Jesus is presenting it. I mean, we must remember the beginning of chapter 18 with the attempt of these 12 to claim a top spot when they said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If we see ourselves in the top spot as the one to root out sin in the church, we are failing as the disciples failed here. I mean, we need to see the teaching of Jesus on reconciliation with a sinful brother or sister as an act of loving humility intended to protect not only the child, but also to protect the integrity of the kingdom of heaven in the church. I mean, the little one, remember the theme here in chapter 18, Jesus continues to repeat the idea of the little ones. That idea continues here. We want to protect the little ones from self-destructive sinful habits. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So if you're able to stand, let's stand together and let's read Matthew 18, beginning in verse 14 through verse 17. This is the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I won't go on in verse 18 and 19. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Father God, we pause at the reading of your word and we hear the words, the voice of your son, Jesus Christ, as he's instructing his 12 apostles, but he's also instructing us. Lord, when we have disagreements amongst each other, the root of that is sin. When we see a fellow brother or sister destroying themselves through their choices, we avoid confronting it because we do not want to hurt their feelings. But then, Father, we must, out of love for them, out of love for your church, we must lovingly say, point out faults when it's necessary. But God, I pray that you would use this text as well to caution us to not elevate our minds and elevate ourselves to the point of judge and jury. That's not the point of the text. But God, I do pray that you would use this time for your glory to remind us that we are sinful human beings. Even as Christians in your church, we struggle in this sinful flesh. And from time to time, you will bring brothers or sisters to us to lovingly show us our fault. And so, God, I pray that you would use this time for your glory. Perhaps someone in this room needs to hear this in a way that that only you know. Perhaps someone is dealing with a sin that someone has shown them, or perhaps we see a fault in a brother or sister that we are hesitant to bring out and point out to them. But, Father, use this text, the words of your son, Jesus, to remind us that we lovingly are a family that belongs to you. And you only want the best for us. You do not want us to perish. So, Father, this moment is for you. Please speak to us boldly now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. As I was reading, forgive me, I wanted to go on to verse 20. So we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20 today. Amen. So we're going to look at all of this together. Verse 14, let's take a look here because I wanted to start with verse 14 because last week when we were looking at the parable of the lost sheep, verse 14 summarized the whole intent of going after a lost sheep and it's the, it's the segue verse into verse 15, showing us why Jesus is teaching this important lesson. I mean, as we begin to seek understanding here of verses 15 through 17, I mean, it's helpful to understand the context, isn't it? I mean, all of Jesus' sermon, all of chapter 18, remember, is one sermon of Jesus to his 12 apostles. It's one, it's, it's almost, uh, scholars almost see it as a summary of the, of the Sermon on the Mount in a way. But it's one teaching moment with his disciples brought on by the arrogant pride of his disciples wanting to know who is the greatest. They wanted the top spot in the kingdom. And Jesus uses this as a teaching moment to even point out their sin. And this is what's happening here. So I think in verse 14, it's helpful to understand the context. I mean, the teaching of loving confrontation actually begins in verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Our Lord 
protects those he cherishes. He does not want any of his little ones to self-destruct, to perish in their sinful habits. I mean, the parable of the lost sheep that we looked at last week actually teaches us that the little ones are prone to wander. Remember, you got some toddlers in your house. Do they like to wander? Even even as the children grow up, they wander. Even as teenagers and young adults, they want to wander. And we as parents, we are we pull our hair out wanting to constantly chase after them. Sheep want to wander. Little ones want to wander. But the idea of the lost sheep, that wandering sheep who would go astray in that parable is that sheep do not think of or fear the dangers that await them outside of the protection of the flock. And so they wander. Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 14, I think, reveals the compassion of our Heavenly Father over all of His flock. I mean, His will is that none of the little ones should be harmed by wandering away from His protection. Many English translations in verse 14 use the term perish, and it's an appropriate translation as a conclusion to the parable of the lost sheep, of the wandering sheep. Why does the shepherd go after them? He does not want them to perish. I mean, clearly the dangers of the wilderness away from the flock can often bring death to a wandering lost sheep. I mean, but I think a more descriptive translation of the word perish here, I mean, can help us understand the context of 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 the outcome. The Greek word here at the end of of verse 14 is the word that implies a tragedy of one's own making. It's not just an accidental, oops, I got lost. If you remember last week, we pointed out this point. It is an intentional decision, a decision of one's own making to leave the protection of the flock and the shepherd, and the result will be tragic. I mean, self-destruction is the best idea here. In other words, at the end of verse 14, uh, as, as Jesus speaks, you could almost say it this. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should self-destruct. That might be a good way. You might want to pencil that in. If That's a good way to understand the word perish. It's not an accidental oops. It is a self-destructive will. I mean, think of this. An action one does to oneself, although the wandering might be initiated by the temptations of an outside force, a false teacher or a satanic force, that could be the initiation of it, but the, but the, the choice to wander is your own choice and can lead to your own self-destruction. I mean, if we remember in Genesis chapter 3, um, it is the serpent who was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And wasn't it the serpent that allured and tempted the first man and the first woman to doubt? Yet it was the willful disobedience of Adam and Eve to wander away from the Father. I mean, the point in Matthew 18, 14 is not that everyone is saved because God desires that all should not perish. I mean, that's true. God desires that all sinners would not perish. But many people take verse 14 out of context. He does desire that all should be saved. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But that does not mean that there is a universal salvation. I mean, the context of Matthew 18 is the protection of the little ones from self-destruction. These little ones belong to the Savior. It's not talking about a universal God is going to save everyone. The context of this text is particularly about the flock, the wandering sheep who leaves the flock. I mean, the context of Matthew 18 is protection, self-destruction. So we must remember this context, I think, as Jesus now transitions in verse 15 to teaching about loving confrontation about sinful habits. Sinful habits, let's think about it, sinful habits are a path to self-destruction, aren't they? Let's look here at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, that's the beginning. It's the transition from the parable of the lost sheep into this. The context of Jesus' words imply a situation in the body of believers with a brother or sister. The word here, adelphos, implies not just men, it implies both brothers and sisters. You could see it that way as siblings, brethren. But notice here that the words, if your brother sins against you, it's not just any sin that's talked about. It sins against you, a fellow brother or sister. So the context here is between brothers and sisters of the faith. The context is clear, and I think Jesus intends this instruction to be for the relationships between the children of his church, the sheep of his flock, the brothers and sisters, the brethren and the sisterin, if you want to use that language. Is sisterin even a word? I don't know. Brethren is, but sisterin is not. I'm trying to be funny, folks. Y'all can laugh at the pastor's jokes every now and then. The sisterin. (laughs) That's a cistern. Yeah, right. (laughs) But think about it. I mean, this action here in verse 15 of sins against you, sins. If your brother sins against you, it implies a habit, a habitual sinful lifestyle, an ongoing thing. Doesn't, I mean, I think you could also include here an offense, an, an occasional offense, but the intent here, the context here is an habitual ongoing problem. An ongoing and even unrepentant mistreatment of one another. I think that's the context here. Remember that the foundation of Christian fellowship and Christian family is the eagerness to bear with one another. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bear with one another. So in other words, the abuse of Matthew 18, 15 is not, well, they looked at me funny and didn't say hello, so I'm offended. It's an ongoing pattern of sin between brothers and sisters primarily. I mean, we're to willingly endure with other believers despite our differences and frustrations. We love and forgive one another despite our quirks. I love y'all, but y'all got quirks. I know you love me and you love my quirks. That's the body of Christ, isn't it? So this this passage that Jesus is talking about is not... A, a license to go after someone who is a different personality than you. It's an ongoing 
sinful behavioral pattern. I mean, I think this is why many in the church avoid loving confrontation. I mean, the misguided idea is that we should endure ongoing difficulties or even endure abuse from fellow Christians because we don't want to offend. I mean, the truth is that while we do bear with one another, I think we also lovingly confront one another, especially a brother or sister who is continually sinning against us or wronging us. I mean, the passage is not dealing with the occasional, again, misspoken word or someone just had a rare bad day. If somebody's having a rare bad day and you know it's outside of their character, that's where we bear with one another. The passage is not dealing with that. I mean, this is dealing with the habitual offense of sin between a brother or sister in the Lord. The, the habitual sin can be a personal offense between two people, or I think it can be an ongoing sinful lifestyle that one brother or sister sees as harmful to a person or harmful to the body of Christ. But let's also be honest. I mean, the sinful habits of one Christian brother or sister is an offense or an ongoing sinful habit that does harm the overall body of Christ, harms others. So I think here in verse 18, we can see harm. a, a, a brother or sister who sins against you can also be the broader body of Christ as well. I think that's, I think that can be taken from this as well. I mean, just as the hard warnings of temptations that lead to sin will harm others that Jesus talked about in verses 5 through 9. Remember, he said, uh, he's talking about the, the dangers of temptations that lead to sin and do not lead these little ones to sin. Temptations do not affect just us individually. Temptations can harm others as well, if, especially if we submit to that temptation. That does not affect just us. It affects others around us. Sin is not just a personal problem. It is a communal problem. All of chapter 18 has been building to this lesson in verse 15, I think. I mean, this is... I'm going to argue that this could be a parable on its own or a continuing illustration of the parable of the lost sheep. I mean, a a pure definition of a parable is a story, an illustration to make a point. And I think verse 15 is continuing the illustration of the parable of the lost sheep. It's giving a practical example. It is, it's a hypothetical, if you will. It's a, it's an if-then story. It's a segue, I think, between two parables. Because you got a parable of the lost sheep before it. You have the parable of the unforgiving servant after it. So is verses 15 through 20 is it a parable in the traditional sense? I don't think so. It doesn't, it's not. But then at the same time, it's a story. It's an if-then hypothetical. I don't know. Maybe I'll, it, I, I called it a parable on its own. I don't know if it fits the traditional definition of a parable, but it is a story. It is a teaching moment that connects two other parables. I mean, the 12 apostles up until this point have been taught by our Lord You must correct yourself. You are misguided in your thinking that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one with power. He's been teaching them that up until this point. So really, Jesus has been practicing verses 15 through 17 in the first 14 verses of chapter 18 by pointing out to the 12 apostles their error, their sin. 
That's one way that we can help someone understand their sin, by teaching them parables and stories. <laughs> that might help. But I think that's what Jesus has been doing here. So now he's looking here. The 12 apostles have to learn to correct their own selfish pride, their childish desire to be the greatest. They have to correct this sinful habit before they're able to lovingly correct others and lovingly correct the little ones who are caught in habitual sinful lifestyles because the discipline of the self involves obedience to Christ, modesty in their self, and gentleness. Because chapter 18, verse 1, there was really no meekness or gentleness in that verse, in that question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Lord? Is it me? That's not very meek. <laughs> it's very prideful, isn't it? And I think Jesus is doing it. He had to correct that in them before he came to verse 15. So now Jesus shifts his sermon to prepare his 12 really to be their brother's keeper and the proper way to bear one another's burdens because these 12 will take over the leadership of the church as Jesus departs and ascends to heaven. Jesus is preparing them here. I mean, he first teaches in the parable of the lost sheep of the little one who is wrong, one that goes astray, who gets lost. Now in the second parable, I'm going to say if this is a parable, you could call it the parable of the sinful brother or sister. I think we see a lost brother or sister, a lost sheep who is wandering, having settled into immorality and antisocial sinful habits. This brother or sister here now sins against the other brethren by being unfaithful, by being immoral and hurtful. In contrast, I think this wandering soul in verses 15 through 17 is disobedient, immodest and harmful. Sin is no longer just the allure that takes him or her away from the shepherd. Sin is now a life. It's a habit. It becomes the essence of this brother or sister. It becomes who they are. That's the context of verse 15. I mean, it's important to note here that Jesus' teaching here in this sermon ushers in a scenario, a scene that time has developed. If your brother sins against you, then go to them. The sinful brother or sister has shown over time an unfaithful or immoral or hurtful behavior towards themselves and towards others in the church. I mean, this is not just a random first offense. It is not an on, instead, it's an ongoing problem that can no longer be kindly overlooked. So if you get to the point of verse 15 with a brother or sister in the church, I would say that there has been something ongoing that you cannot ignore. Let me come talk to you about what I see. Let's look here at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, the next part is, go and tell him his fault. How? Between you and him alone. Privately. Lovingly. Jesus' words here are in the imperative. In other words, it's a command. He commands the brothers, the brethren, particularly these apostles who will have authority to go and tell or to confront evil behavior when it is evident. Too often, I think Christians misapply Jesus' teaching uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 that we are to turn the other cheek when in the face of evil. And so when we see evil amongst a brother or sister, we want to turn the other cheek. And that is 
that we, and that we're not to judge others. That's Matthew chapter seven, right? Don't, don't judge lest you be judged. Oh, turn the other cheek in the face of evil. People take that and misapply it here. I mean, it's difficult to confront a brother or sister that we love dearly, isn't it? How many of you like confrontation? I hate it. I dislike confrontation. I know most people, you avoid confrontation because it is very unpleasant. But Jesus' words here are intended to protect the soul of the brother or sister. You could even say protect the little one here. I mean, his words to confront the sinful brother or sister is in verse 15, is in the spirit of verse 14. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish, or like I said, should self-destruct. That's the spirit of verse 15. He commands to confront It's also the spirit of Matthew 18, verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility and desire for the loving protection of someone to not self-destruct. Anyone in the body of Christ who steps outside of the will of the Father and elevates himself or herself above humility and considers oneself above the temptations of habit of sin is in a dangerous place. I mean, God's will is that this brother or sister in Christ who is sinning would not self-destruct in their pride. Anytime that one thinks of himself or herself as the model of Christian virtue, who is obvious that they are living, they, that they are not living in a sinful habit. I mean, this is, this is a problem that the brother of the church should confront that problem. If you see someone elevating their pride of, well, I'm not sinful. I'm too spiritually mature to be at fault. That's a great time and an imperative time for brothers and sisters to love them and say, you sure about that? I mean, there's there's, there's responsibility here to restore a sinful brother or sister. I mean, the, the disciples here, the apostles here, they have an obligation to protect this little one who has gone astray beyond just being a lost sheep. Gentleness and honesty are necessary here, but this gentleness cannot be passive either. So look here as we continue at verse 15. If he listens to you, what? You have gained your brother. So there's two hypotheticals in the same verse. If your brother sins against you, then go and confront them. Just between you and him alone. But if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's wonderful. It should stop there. 99.9% of the time, if a loving brother or sister comes to you as another brother or sister in the faith and says, I love you, here's what I see, just hear my heart. It should stop there. It should stop there. Thank you for seeing this in me. I didn't see it. I'm going to have to really understand what you're telling me here. I didn't know this about myself. Thank you for revealing it to me. I mean, this teaching is for the restoration of a brother in Christ. This is the evangelism of a Christian. I mean, the person won or gained is not an evil pagan, but your brother. An important and I think often neglected part of evangelism is winning Christians to Christianity. You know what I mean here? 
I mean, to disciple disciples, to win the church to Christ always, constantly. You're a Christian. You're a brother or sister in the faith. Let me make sure that I win you back every day. I mean, as Jesus begins his teaching here in verse 15, he says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, confront him or her privately, just the two of you. Why is this important? I mean, first, Jesus wisely instructs the private discussion to honor the integrity of the one who is being confronted. The sinful brother or sister should be shown honor, and it begins by honoring them with a private discussion. I mean, the temptation may be that if the sin is so obvious that everyone in the church knows it, we may then say that, well, let's just jump to the correction and bring them before the church and cast them out. That's wrong. I mean, Jesus does not teach this as the first act of restoration. Instead, if we do this, this is a sin that is an eye for an eye or a tit for tat and is not compassion. I mean, the revelation of a sinful habit must begin as a private discussion. Just as a good parent will often take a child aside and talk with that child privately, I think so too mature Christians are to take aside a little one in the faith, particularly a new Christian in the faith, or even a mature Christian, and reveal the problem privately. Let's go talk over coffee. You you want to do coffee today? Let's go do coffee. Is everything okay at home? Let me tell you what I see. I'm worried about you. I'm worried about you. I mean, in private conversation, the one confronting may learn that his or her concern is misjudged or misunderstood as well. Doesn't mean that the person who is confronting the brother or sister is always right. They may be misunderstanding something. And this is an opportunity for the two to reveal the truth. I mean, private confrontation gives room to the sinful brother or sister to maybe explain a misunderstanding and then show their innocence. But likewise, it could all, it, very often it is more so this, innocent, this brother or sister who is not so innocent does not re- realize that they're not so innocent. So in other words, a private conversation will reveal the truth of the matter. Are they truly in a sinful habit that they must be aware of? Or is the perception wrong? That's why a private conversation is important. Begin there. If this turns out to be the case that the person is innocent, the familial relationship between brothers and sisters in the church is even restored and strengthened there too. Jesus commands here in verse 15, I think it actually applies to the will of the Father again in verse 14. It is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That should be the intent of the conversation. Not a finger-wagging You're guilty and I'm your judge. I'm coming to you because I don't want you to self-destruct. I'm coming to you because I see something that troubles me. Let's help me understand. I mean, look here at verse 16. As he continues here in verse 16, but if he does not listen, now here's the other hypothetical. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I mean, I would say obviously that if you go to a person privately one-on-one, it would probably be that other people in the church notice this already anyway. 
But you want to go talk to this person one-on-one first before you go to this next step. Because maybe people in the church as a collective are misunderstanding something. Maybe one person is the one to talk to them. But if we get to here to verse 16, Jesus is saying it's because that brother or sister does not listen to your private counsel. They ignore you. You go on to the next one. You get two or three more to go talk to this person to confirm the problem. I mean, yet just, I mean, Christians, I mean, just as Christians are hesitant to confront a brother or sister in their sinful habits, the one confronted with his or her sin, let's think about this. If you are confronted with sin, how many of us get defensive with such a conversation? How many people have gone to a brother or sister with an obvious sin and they become defensive in your private conversation? That's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 16. If you get to verse 16, that person has become defensive. The defensive response of, I am not sinning. Who else says this? Right? You can have a conversation one-on-one with somebody, and if they get real defensive with things like that, well, who else is saying this? You're telling me, but I don't believe you. Who else is saying this? They're inviting step number two. I think... It shows a deeper sinful habit and a really an elevated self-righteousness that needs to be confronted even deeper. I mean, sometimes the brother or sister in their habitual sin, they want to act spiritual. How dare you charge me with this? How dare you speak to me this way? You ever had somebody talk to you like that? You will come to them lovingly and they react this way. I've done it. Okay. I mean, when the response of a brother or sister in Christ is defensive, it often reveals the truth of the sin. I mean, for any brother or sister to respond with a self-righteous pride, and they're not humble and they're not meek, it actually reveals the sin is deeper. I mean, so here in verse 16, Jesus employs actually the tenets of the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, established the requirement of two or more witnesses before anyone is convicted. It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses shall a charge be established. Deuteronomy 19.15. Now, here's the problem. The sinner who is being confronted one-on-one, who jumps to this automatically, is ignoring and rejecting the loving compassion in verse 15. I want two or more witnesses. I don't believe you. Okay. Love you. We don't want to go there, but we'll bring two or more witnesses. Let's talk. I mean, the second step in restoration of a brother or sister who's caught up in this sin ensures patience. Jesus is establishing patience here in this. I mean, it guarantees that a single person is not falsely stirring up problems with another brother or sister and falsely accusing them. I mean, it further ensures that even the little ones, the lost sheep, are not harmed even further. I mean, remember the purpose of this teaching is following the parable of the lost sheep and is intended to protect the soul and the integrity of the little ones. Jesus is teaching this in this spirit. I want to protect them. I mean, going to this sinful brother or sister as a group of two or three actually guarantees that the observation, the, 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 the 
Confrontation of sin is objective and not just a personal vendetta. I mean, if two or three people see the same issue, there's got to be some truth to it. You got to uncover that truth. What is it? I mean, once again, a person may be personally influenced by selfish pride. And if another mature or godly brother or sister in the faith sees the same harm in sinful habits, there's obviously an objective truth to the sinful lifestyle. More than one person sees this. I mean, certainly a Christian brother or sister will see the love of others and the truth revealed that they might be blind to themselves, you would hope. I mean, another key cross-reference here to verse 16 um, in the New Testament applies here to the relation of charges against elders or leaders of the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the pattern of two or three witnesses is throughout Scripture and even here. But Jesus, notice he begins with a one-on-one personal conversation first. 99.9% of the time, that should be enough. Yet it's important to notice here that Jesus' greater gentleness here is goes beyond the legal demands of the Mosaic Law of Deuteronomy 19. That's the point. I mean, Jesus' intent is the restoration and the protection of the little ones, whereas the legal demands of Deuteronomy 19 is to root out evil from among God's people. And too far too often, we as Christians want to jump to that rather than looking at the restoration of a fallen brother or sister as an act of compassion. Verse 17. Now we get to the nitty-gritty that a lot of people jump to. If he refuses to listen, even to the two or three witnesses, if he refuses to listen to them, now Jesus' third step in this instruction reveals the true nature of the sinful habit in this brother or sister. If he refuses to listen even to them, plural. I mean, this shows a deeper defensiveness that makes even more evident the need for saving this soul from self-destruction. I mean, now the two or three are instructed to bring the problem to the church as a whole. I would argue that in this phase, verse 17, should involve church leadership for sure. This cannot be just a congregational, hey, pastor, we need to have a trial uh, Sunday morning because so-and-so ignored me and then ignored two or three people. We're ready for a church trial. And the church leadership has no idea what's going on. That That's not how it works. I think here, clearly, church leadership should already be involved. As a matter of fact, I think it is often helpful and necessary that at least one or two of the witnesses that go in verse 16 should be a pastor or an elder in the church. At that point. Because if the issue must be brought before the entire church, leadership needs to guide this. It can't just be an angry mob going after one soul. See the point? I mean, again, if verse 17 must occur in this loving confrontation and the attempt to restore the brother or sister, this brother or sister is in sin and has shown the objective and observable truth that he or she is no longer simply just misguided and wandering, but is so deceived that they have embraced the temptation of sin. This brother or sister is clearly showing contempt for the harmony of Christ's body, 
the church. They have embraced fully the deception of the evil one. They are destroying themselves if you get to verse 17. I mean, secondly, this third step may involve a group of two or three that tried to confront the sinful brother or sister so discreetly that the leadership of the church heard the problem for the first time. If this is the case, I would say the leadership of the church should now begin back at step one and let the leadership start at step one and go through the process. I mean, perhaps the intent of verse 17, tell it to the church, may be that the congregation, two or three or more, should just come tell it to the church leadership. Maybe that's what tell it to the church means. I mean, it just depends on the scenario. I'm just telling you, you have to take these case by case. This is not a legalistic do it this way or that. What I'm saying is maybe the definition of tell it to the church is go to the church leadership with it and let the church leadership now take over. I mean, the words here from Jesus do not clearly mean that verse 17 is a call of a public trial before the church. It may come to that, but if a problem of sin comes to step three of verse 17, then the greater authority of the church, either the elders or the pastors, I mean, it should include the congregation as a whole, but the leaders of the church should lead the congregation. The issue has grown to such a serious level. This is not just individuals in the church taking the law into their own hands anymore. I mean, now, if and only if the church concurs with the concerns of the group of the two or three witnesses, then the church herself gives the sinful brother or sister a third and last opportunity to see the habitual sin. Verse 17 is not an automatic condemnation. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And in that, I would hope and pray that that sinful brother or sister would see, maybe for one last time, I am wrong. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is a rare occurrence in the church, but unfortunately it does happen. But the intent here is not to condemn or judge a person who and say you are no longer even in the loving salvation protection of our Lord anymore. You are We still will pray for you and we will pray for your restoration and your coming back into the fold. But for the time being, they need to go. Consider them as a Gentile or a tax collector. But remember, even in that, even as you consider that person a Gentile or tax collector, the intent here is to protect him or her from harm, not to satisfy an agenda. If the church does not concur, though, look at this, in verse 17, if the church does not agree as a whole that this person is in sin, now the church turns the issue away from the accused individual and to the deeper sin of the witnesses, plural, who brought all this up. Now you've got a deeper issue. I mean, I've seen this happen in churches before. A small group of power-hungry people plot and manufacture charges against those they fear or do not like. And they use this passage as their shield. Got to be careful there too. I personally see that the authority of the church leadership actually directs all of this, especially verse 17. I mean, the church leadership may only announce to the church congregation the steps and the outcome of the discipline. There may not be a, quote, public trial. 
Maybe that the church leadership in a group asks this person, we love you, but you're in sin. And until you repent, you are no longer part of the fellowship. That may be that. It doesn't need to be a trial, but it could be. I mean, I personally see here that the church leadership is the one, the ones who control it. If the, but Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, we desire a group of elders to lead like this, to deal with discipline like this. This is why I'm prayerfully asking men in this church to answer the call to step up as elders in these kind of situations. We're a young church. You've heard me from the pulpit before say I've asked men over the years to step into this role and some have politely said no. Others, the Lord has called to other ministries. They've left us. Nathan and I were praying about this this morning and talking and, and commenting about how this church in the last year has become a totally different and new congregation. It's almost like a turnover. But again, nothing out of animosity. It's just people have either moved for jobs or they've moved to ministries and, we, and, and we're new. How many of y'all are, I mean, most of you in this room, you've been here for a year, maybe a year and a half or less, two. See my point? So I, this is a plea from the pulpit, men. I'm praying for men, godly men, who I've talked to already and some I'm going to talk to again. We need to have a more structured eldership now. We're no longer just a baby church. Let's hear at the end of verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. It is no small matter here when a body of Christian believers decides with humility and actually broken hearts that a person who is once a brother or sister becomes so sinful and obstinate and defensive they can no longer be considered a brother or sister. Verse 17, it should be the most painful process for the church. I mean, it's in this situation of Matthew 18, 17, when the brother or sister is considered a Gentile or a tax collector, he or she is no longer seen as a fellow believer. The entire congregation is involved here, again, by the guidance of the church leadership, but often, again, the perception of this is harsh and serious discipline. Some churches, and, and traditionally more independent churches, fundamentalist churches, will use the practice of shunning. You ever heard of that idea? It can be cruel and legalistic. But I want to caution us that that is not what Jesus is intending in verse 17. I don't think he intends the outcome of shunning. He does intend the outcome of restoration. I mean, the intent of Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is to protect, remember, the little ones from the self-destruction of sin. I mean, remember the lesson on temptation again? Temptation is the necessary, and the not necessary consequences of temptation that are sin now dominates all of creation, and we're dealing with it. But this does not mean that the Christian brother or sister is to submit to it. That's why verses 15 through 17 are here. If we are caught up in our sin, we have brothers or sisters who can lovingly come alongside of us and restore us. We have taken enough time here. Let's, I just want to briefly, I know it's a little bit of time, I want to briefly look at verses 18 through 19 because I kept reading because I think it's important. Following verses 15, say a lot of people stop at verses 15 through 17. And then they take verses 18 through 20 and pull it out as its own little text. But they're all connected. 
You ever heard this? Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Verses 18 through 20 have been so distorted by the prosperity, name it and claim it, word of faith movements. I mean, the idea of binding and loosing has been take, so taken out of context that we think that these are, these are words of our Lord giving us permission to have the power to declare what we want. But notice it's in the context of the parable of the lost sheep, the restoration of a sinful brother or sister, and then following it, the forgiveness of a brother or sister. So the idea here, verses 18 through 20, of binding and loosing is the idea that Jesus is granting. He's not granting divine authority to bind or loose demonic powers. That's ludicrous. Can I just tell you from the pulpit here, folks, any Christian who thinks they have the power to bind or loose demonic powers, you are deceiving yourself. The only person who has that authority is Jesus Christ himself. Now, we see evidence of that in, in, in the book of Acts and throughout much of the New Testament. The apostles did this, but notice how they did it. In the name of Jesus Christ, I say, He says, come out of them. But folks, any of you in this room, if you say, yeah, I've got the power to cast out demons, you've not faced a demon. <laughs> They're mean, <laughs> okay? They're powerful. The idea of binding or loosening here, I think, instead is clearly connected again to the power of a unified body of believers who love one another so much that when they are united together, they can confront sin lovingly. They can bind the sin in a brother or sister by exposing it. There's nothing like exposing a sin to stop it. It's the hidden sin that continues. And sometimes it takes brothers or sisters to lovingly come to you and say, I love you, brother or sister, but here's what I see and I'm worried about you. Help me understand what you're thinking. Help me understand maybe what you're going through and let's do this together. That's the two or three that Jesus is talking about here. In verse 19, again, I say, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father. So when we go and confront a brother or sister, verse 19 tells us we're not confronting them on our own and we're not restoring them on our own. Verse 19 says that if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for them. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. If, if you agree on earth about anything they ask, ask. So when we come to a brother or sister, two or three, we ask the Father in heaven, show this brother or sister their sin. We ask, and it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Verse 24, where two or three are gathered in my name. That's the two or three witnesses spoken of in verse 16. For where two or three are gathered in my name in verse 16, when you go and confront a brother or sister, here's the important part. You're not there alone confronting them. I am with you. If you are afraid to go talk to a brother or sister about their sin, verse 20, I think Jesus' words are very comforting. If two or three of you must go confront a brother or sister about their sin, you're not alone. 
I'm with you. Because if we go alone to confront a brother or sister in their sin, who are we then? We're a lynch mob. We're not a lynch mob, folks. We're, we're a body of Christ. And where we go together, our Lord is with us. And that's the context here. Amen? I don't know where you are in hearing this text this morning. Maybe, maybe you're the brother or sister that is being confronted. It hurts. It's painful. But it's necessary sometimes. Can you see that your brothers and sisters love you so much they want to come to you privately and say, I love you, can I help you? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're the brother or sister, the two or three witnesses that you're dealing with. I see this in my family. I see this in my church. I see this in my co-workers. How do I talk to them? How do I confront them? I would say by the words of Jesus Christ here, what his instruction, you go cautiously, you go lovingly, you go humbly. You go with Christ, not by yourself. Folks, this is the text of of Scripture that, again, has been so misunderstood by both sides. I don't want to confront because I'm supposed to turn the other cheek and I'm not supposed to judge. Or, I want to be the judge and I want to purge evil. Both extremes are incorrect. Jesus is using... Notice, again, I want to bring this out one last time. Remember here that it's sandwiched between two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the unforgiving servant. I'm arguing here, maybe I need to do more research. Maybe I can form an argument, a theological, doctrinal argument, why this might be its own parable. I don't know. The parable of the sinful brother. I don't know. But it's a teaching moment. But notice here, I want to bring out one last point here. In verse 18 and, and through 20, When Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. When it talks about the sin of this brother or sister, the idea here in verse 18 of shall be bound is actually you could, you could translate it shall have been bound. It's already bound. The sin that controls us, the sin that puts us in prison has already been bound by our Savior. So when we go and we confront a brother or sister in the faith, that sin that they're dealing with, that they're struggling with, that temptation that is misguiding them, it's already been bound by our Savior. It's already been loosed by His blood. The trap that we are in is no longer trapping us. That's what Jesus is meaning here in verses 18 through 20. I am there amongst you, and it's already been taken care of, but I'm going to use you, my church, to reveal it. How many of y'all are ready for that? Again, let's not go eagerly out and find sin in people and uncover it. That's I catch people doing that. You're going to have a one-on-one with the pastor. And I hate one-on-ones with the pastor. <laughs> I'm just telling I hate one-on-ones like that. I love one-on-ones with, hey, how can I listen? How can I help you? What's going on in your family? I love those kind of one-on-ones. I hate the one-on-ones with, you know what? We got a problem here we need to talk about. I hate those. I hate them with a passion. I don't enjoy it. 
But, but Jesus is saying that sin must be revealed. Error must be corrected. Because the integrity of the church, the integrity of the brother or sister in Christ is so important. So as we leave today, I pray that you, you, you see yourself in that way, that you see that Christ loves you so much that He's right there with you and He loves you so much He doesn't want the sin to, cor- to corrupt you or control you or trap you anymore. That's the point. He doesn't want you to perish. He doesn't want you to self-destruct. Amen. Let me close with some prayer. We're going to transition now into a time of worship at the Lord's table. Let me pray first. Father God, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Lord, none of us like to be shown our sin. This is why we avoid You. That's why Adam and Eve ran from You in the garden when their sin was shameful. None of us want to see the truth, but Lord, in Your grace, in Your compassion, in Your mercy, You show us the need for a Savior because we are lost without Him. And so God, I am so thankful that You have established this, Your church, so that we can love one another and walk beside one another in this sinful world that we're still living in. Lord, I pray that you would give us all compassion for the new believer in in Christ, the one who is even coming along and struggling with whether or not Jesus is real. Give us that sense of Christ-like compassion for them and walk alongside them as your son walks alongside us. Lord, we need you. And I'm so grateful that your son Jesus is teaching the truth here. And it's sandwiched between the parable of the lost sheep, and the unforg- and forgiving the sinner. That's what this is about. And so, God, we ask for your mercies here. We ask for your grace and your love. As we transition into a, a, an act of worship, the ordinance of the Lord's table that your Son Jesus has given us and commanded us to participate in, I pray that you would use this text, this lesson, in our minds as we come to this table, remembering that our sin came with a high cost and remembering that our Savior died for us. I pray, Lord, you'd use this time to reveal to us our sin, reveal to us where we need to confess, reveal to us where we need to submit to the Lordship of our Savior and love Him for who He is and what He's done. This is an act of worship, Lord, that is yours. Please, we, we ask that we honor you. We ask that you be pleased with us. We invite you here now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.